honored me to be here with you this morning. Um, I bring you greetings from Sterling Park Baptist Church. And we at Sterling Park, we're really incredibly excited for what God is already doing among this community and, and thrilled to be a part of it through prayer. We do corporately uh, pray for you um, many, many mornings as part of our gathering. So um, uh, it's really just a great honor to be here. We're going to be looking at a passage from Leviticus this morning, so if you would turn or on your phones, I don't know what you would call that, but go to Leviticus chapter 20, uh, 22 through 26. We're going to read that in just a minute. Some of you know me from your days at Sterling Park, um, but something that even those of you who know me probably don't know about me is that I like musicals. There's a little laughter there like Broadway musicals. I am, in fact, currently semi-obsessed with Hamilton, the soundtrack. I can't afford to see it. Um, and, and actually, until a few days ago, that wouldn't have been at all a controversial thing to say. But So I'm sure I've offended somebody today by saying I like Hamilton. Sorry about that. One thing I find fascinating about shows like Hamilton or Les Miserables or, or movies like The Lord of the Rings is that they use a musical technique called leitmotif. A leitmotif is a recurrent theme throughout a piece of music that is associated with a particular person or idea. So when you hear that musical theme, you know who was about to show up on stage or screen. A classic example of this is the Imperial March in the Star Wars saga. So when you hear dun 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 dun, you know that Darth Vader is on screen, even if you have your eyes closed, right? And this may seem a strange introduction to our passage, and admittedly it is, it is a bit strange, but Leviticus does have a melody to it, complete with leitmotif. If you only know a little about Leviticus, you may think it's just a list of rules for the Israelites to follow, but there is more to it. So in order to provide some context for our passage, I'd like to zoom out just a bit. So I want to start back in Exodus. So the Israelites... God's chosen people have been led out of Egypt, rescued from slavery by God, and they are wandering the desert. And the second time that God gives his people the Ten Commandments in Exodus 34, if you remember the story, Moses comes down from the mountain and his face is radiant. His face is literally shining because God allowed him to see God's back. Moses saw just a glimpse of God's glory, his perfectness, if you will, his holiness. And Moses' face, as a result, is glowing, and the Israelites are freaking out. They have seen a glimpse of God's holiness reflected in Moses' face, and they are in awe. And this idea of God's holiness and his glory, which John Piper calls his holiness on display, become an accent or a leitmotif throughout Leviticus, which follows Exodus immediately in the Bible. So Leviticus begins soon after Moses' glowing face with God giving Moses laws for the Israelites regarding offerings, right? Burnt offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings, which we'll talk about in a bit, and laws for the priests who administer the offerings, how they are to carry out their priestly duties. And after nine chapters of laws, 
as soon as Aaron begins his priesthood and provides a burnt offering to the Lord as prescribed, again we see the glory of the Lord appearing to his people. This is Leviticus chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. So here we are, nine chapters into Leviticus, laws, And a picture of God's glory appears again for us. And God's people, once again, are in awe. This theme, this leitmotif is being established. And then, after chapter 9, God gives Moses laws about clean and unclean animals. And then, our leitmotif again. In Leviticus 11.44, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. God reminding his people of his holiness again. And then God gives Moses laws for the people regarding purification and what to do with people who have leprosy and prohibitions against eating blood. And then Leviticus 19.2, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then laws regarding loving one's neighbor, punishment for child sacrifice and sexual immorality. And then we come to our passage which closes, we'll read this in a second, but which closes with, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. So throughout all the laws, instructions on offerings, and prohibitions throughout Leviticus, God reminds us of why he has given these commands by peppering in a few places that theme, be holy, because I am holy. This is the theme of God's glory, his holiness on display. The reason for all the statutes and rules and commandments come back to God's holiness. We're about to look at this in detail in our passage, which again, as we just saw, is the third mention of this leitmotif. So let's turn to our passage. Leviticus 20, 22 through 26. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine." I think we should take a minute at the outset here and define this term holiness. We see throughout scripture that God is called holy. In fact, twice in the Bible, in the Old Testament in Isaiah 6, 3, which we read, and Revelation 4, 8 in the New Testament, heavenly creatures describe him as holy, 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 right? Three times holy. 
The repeating of a phrase like this was actually common to the Jews and would be used to emphasize the intensity of something, to express it with force. So it's as if he's saying holy, holier, holiest. So God in both Testaments is described as holiest, essentially. He is, in essence, the supreme example of holiness. So what is holiness? Holiness literally means separation. So God is holy in that he is radically separated from his creation or from anything else. Often, when we talk about God's holiness, we are talking about his sovereignty, right? His perfectness. He is perfectly righteous and good. He is separated in those ways from anything or anyone else. Holy for the Israelites meant something slightly different. God calls them his holy nation in Exodus 19.6. He doesn't mean that they are a sovereign and perfect nation, able to inspire awe and wonder in all creation. No, for them, it meant two things. They were separate from all other nations because they were God's chosen people. So in that sense, they are holy. They are set apart. But it's also a command. God called them to live out that separation by being holy, following his rules, doing good, emulating God, living as if they are truly made in his image, reflecting God. So I want us to focus briefly on three reasons why the Israelites should be holy, as we see from our passage. So the first reason that the Israelites should be holy that our passage tells us is, first, because God detests and punishes sin. He detests and punishes sin. God starts off our passage in verses 22 and 23 by warning the Israelites about what will happen if they don't follow his statutes and rules. Let me read those again. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. In order to stay in the promised land, the Israelites would have to be holy, follow his rules, obey his commandments, live as the holy nation that he chose them to be. He tells them that if they live like the former inhabitants, the Canaanites live, he will drive Israel out of their new promised land. The land will vomit them out, reject them like our bodies might reject a virus. Of course, God is behind the rejection by the land, right? He is the one doing the evicting. And why will he drive them out? Because the things that the Canaanites do, and which the Israelites are warned not to do, which we know to be things like child sacrifice and gross sexual sin, among other things. Those are all things that God has prohibited in the the preceding chapters. So these are sins that cause God to detest those who do them. He hates sin. Sin must be punished. And the punishment for Israel, should they ignore his commands and refuse to be holy, is to lose the land set aside for them. Now, about that promised land, that, of course, is Canaan, the land that even our passage quotes is the land that is flowing with milk and honey, which is to mean that it is filled with everything that they need and desire. In Genesis 17, 8, while making his covenant with Abraham, God promises his people a land, 
hence the name promised land. He says, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So if he has promised them a land, is God rescinding his promise here? Well, no, that's, that's obviously not what's happening. God is not rescinding anything. All of God's covenants throughout the Bible have blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. John Frame explains in his uh, systematic theology, he says this, So like all the other covenants, the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional in the sense that in it, God declares that he will certainly accomplish his own purpose— the blessing of the nations through Abraham. But it is conditional in that those who would receive that blessing must trust and obey. So God is not rescinding anything. In fact, what he's doing here is reminding Israel of the condition for receiving the promised land. Obey my statutes. Keep my rules. Do these things. Be holy. But if they will behave like the Canaanites, they will experience an eviction like the Canaanites. God is serious about sin. He detests it, and he must punish it. And this should serve as motivation for his people to live holy lives. So that's the first reason that Israel should be holy, because God hates sin and punishes sin. The second reason that Israel should be holy is that they are a separate people. God says that Israel should be holy because he has separated them. He says it twice there. In verse 24, he says, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. And then again in verse 26, you shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. In a way, God is saying, you should be holy in behavior because I have already made you a holy nation in status holy and that they have been set apart. So God's saying here, be who you are. Act out your identity. Be holy because you are holy. You are set apart. I think it's interesting how God speaks of himself in this verse and throughout Leviticus and much of the Old Testament. He says, I am the Lord. Lord rendered this way with a capital L and O-R-D in small caps is the way that most translations render God's name that he gave Moses at the burning bush, Yahweh. The personal name of God for his chosen people to know him by. God said to Moses in Exodus 3, remember, I am who I am. Yahweh is really built on the Hebrew word meaning I am. So God was saying to Moses, really, I am Yahweh. That's where they got that name. So when God is saying throughout Leviticus, I am the Lord, he is saying again, I am Yahweh, or really, I am the I am. So it's really kind of cycling right back to Exodus 3. There's much more to be said about the significance of that name, but but the point to remember here is Yahweh is essentially God's proper name. He is reminding Israel that they are special to him. They know his personal name and that they have been separated from other nations because he loves them and knows them. That's what he says there at the end of verse 26. I'm separating you so that you should be mine. They are chosen. They are special. They are unique. They are distinct. So because they are set apart and distinct, these statutes and laws are meant to separate them from other people groups. They are to look 
and act differently. And so he says there at the end of verse 24, essentially, because you are distinct, distinguish between clean and unclean things. Because you are a separated people, you should separate those things that are allowable and not allowable. God's rules are countercultural. That's true of us today, too. Following them will cause his people to look different. Because they are God's chosen, separated people, they should be holy. So God's people should be holy because God hates sin, because they and we now are a separate people. And third, and finally, because God is holy. God says there at the beginning of verse 26, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. Here is that leitmotif that we were talking about. God certainly raises the bar on Israel's holiness here, right? They need to be holy because he is holy. God has made us, created us, in order for us to glorify him, to love him, and to serve him. He also created us in his image, as Genesis 1 tells us. So if our purpose is to glorify him, and God created us in his image, then the way to bring him glory is to live our lives in such a way that images him, so to speak. God seems to be saying just that to the Israelites. You should be holy, that is, live your lives in such a way as to obey my commandments and my statutes because I created you in my image and I am holy. And this aspect of holiness, the way we as God's people live our lives in conformity to God's rules happens through sanctification. It's the process of our becoming more like him, more holy. Sanctification is a process, but one that every believer is going through. If you are a Christ follower, you are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you upon your conversion and causes a believer to become more and more like Christ by changing us from the inside out. So a believer, a Christian, is being sanctified. And while we know that God does this work in us today to a large extent, as we just mentioned, through his Holy Spirit, it's clear from Leviticus that the burden of sanctification, becoming more holy, is also on us. We have work to do. We are commanded to keep God's laws and live in obedience to him. And this is because we are meant to reflect his image, his holiness. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor in Michigan, says it well in one of his books, The Whole in Our Holiness, when he says this, Our holy God sets us apart to live in a way that reflects, however imperfectly, his holiness. Let me read that again. Our holy God sets us apart to live in a way that reflects, however imperfectly, his holiness. Kevin DeYoung brings up an interesting point at the end there. Our holiness, even our best attempt at holiness, is imperfect when compared to God's holiness. God's holiness, remember, is him being separated from everything and everyone because of his perfect goodness and righteousness. So yes, God is asking his people to live lives in obedience to him, but he is also saying, be holy as he is holy. Be perfect at obedience. Be perfect at righteousness. Emulate me. Be like my image. That is the standard that God sets. 
Well, I think it's obvious that that is just not possible for us, right? Not this side of heaven anyway. When we see God face to face in glory, we will finally be truly holy. But on earth, we cannot be pure reflections of God. Because of the fall, sin has corrupted us so that no one is able, no matter how hard we try, to live a perfect life. God knew that the Israelites couldn't truly be holy like he is holy. So God set up a system so that people's sins, their unholiness, could be atoned for through sacrifices. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the context in which our passage is set in, involved the sinner taking an animal without blemish, sometimes a lamb, a bull, a goat. Leviticus told you which animal you were supposed to bring. They would take that animal without blemish. They would lay their hands on the head of the animal, symbolically transferring their sin to the animal. And the animal would be sacrificed on the altar. It's blood being spilt as a required payment for the sin. But these sacrifices were only temporary, meaning that they could never cause one's heart to turn away from sin and toward God. No, the very next day, that same Israelite would find themselves needing to make another sacrifice to atone for yet another sin. The people could never truly be holy as God by just making sacrifices. They could try to obey his laws, but as Jesus would say later, they were still sinning by breaking God's laws in their hearts, right? Failing to love, committing murder in their hearts by hating people, committing adultery in their hearts by lusting. The law sets forth a perfect standard, but gives no assistance to achieve that standard. This is why the entire sacrificial system is called a ministry of death in 2 Corinthians 3 by Paul. Sacrificing animals for one's sins doesn't make someone holy. It merely points out just how unholy someone is. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says this well. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? You see what the author of Hebrews is saying there? If this really was changing people on the inside, eventually they would stop having to go and offer these sacrifices. Continuing on in verse 3, But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This entire system was really a foreshadowing of what was to come. The law was built to show us our sinfulness to show us that we needed a savior to provide us with righteousness, to provide us with true holiness. Jesus is called the spotless lamb. He's the sacrificial animal. He was spotless because he never sinned. He lived a perfect life following all of God's laws, and thus he was an unblemished sacrifice. When he went to the cross, all of the sins of his people were transferred to him. Not symbolically, but literally transferred to him. And his blood was spilt as a payment for all of our sins. He died as a substitute for his people. And his sacrifice was permanent, not temporary. 
He was the ultimate sacrifice. No more sacrifices need to be made to atone for sin. That's why you didn't bring goats and bulls with you this morning. Praise God. Hebrews 9.12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secured our redemption with his sacrifice. His holiness was transferred to those of us who would believe in him. Believers get credit for his holiness, and his spirit living inside us produces real, lasting change. Changes that do give us assistance to be holy, to achieve that standard. This ministry of the Spirit is a ministry of life, not death. And if you are here with us this morning and you haven't yet accepted Jesus' sacrifice as being on your behalf, I would urge you to consider that without His righteousness, you do not have the holiness of God that He requires to have an eternal life with Him. No matter how much good you have done, we have all fallen short of glorifying God and reflecting his image perfectly. And God in his justice and holiness must punish our sin. And that's an eternal life apart from him. But Jesus willingly went to the cross as a sacrifice to take on the sins of his people and was punished, killed in our place. And because of his death and his resurrection, death has been conquered for those of us who would believe. So I urge you, friend, turn to Christ today. If you have questions about what that means, you can certainly talk to me after the service or anyone you've seen up here. Talk to the person who brought you. We would love nothing more than to tell you more about that gospel message. So I want to close by looking at what this means for us today as the church. We always get a little nervous when we start talking about living out our holiness, don't we? There's a lot of people in here I can just tell are a little tense right now. What does this mean for us? Well, we too are God's chosen people. This isn't just a story for them, right? People from thousands of years ago. This is the same God with the same love for holiness, with the same hatred of sin, and with a set-apart people, the church. If you are a Christ follower here this morning, you are one of God's elect, his chosen people, and God cares about your personal holiness. As he did for the Israelites, he has separated you from the world, and he wants us to be holy as well because he is holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says just that, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter even quotes Leviticus there while applying this to the church. And so God wants you to be holy for the same reasons he gave the Israelites. We are his people, set apart to reflect his image. We are commanded to pursue purity, pursue perfect obedience, pursue righteousness. And as we mentioned, because of Christ's atonement on the cross, there's no need for sacrifices anymore. Instead, Paul says in Romans 12 that we should offer our lives themselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God by not conforming to this world. Instead of being like the world, we should live as set-apart people, sacrificing the temporal pleasures that the world tempts us with so that we can be holy and pleasing to the Lord, a a counter-cultural people. 
I think that this command to be holy is difficult for some of us to grapple with. I'll include myself in that. Most of us treasure the gospel. We love the idea that Christ died for our sins, nailed them to the cross, and secured our redemption. Amen. Who would ever have a problem with that? We love that. But I wonder, brothers and sisters, do you pray as fervently for your sanctification as you do thanking him for the gospel? Kevin DeYoung, again, in that same book, The Hole in Our Holiness, says that there is a gap between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness. And I think he's right. We love the gospel, but we are slow to love and cherish our pursuit of godliness and holiness. Loving Christ is obeying his commands. Our holiness is a playing out, if you will, of our salvation. In fact, it is the word of God that transforms us into the image of Christ. It is the gospel preached that causes us to grow. This is why sitting under the faithful teaching of God's word by attending a gospel preaching church is so vital. The preaching of the word on Sunday morning is at least in part meant to help you grow in Christ likeness. Our love for the gospel and for the word should result in a love for holiness. I mean, just picture it. I wonder, friends, how differently our churches, both yours and mine, would look if we were passionate about our holiness. Wouldn't it be amazing if we so desperately wanted to live God-obedient, God-imaging lives that we invited others to help us be holy? We might ask people to hold us accountable. We might have more of us involved in small groups so that people could be closer to our lives to help us grow in Christ-likeness. We might turn Sunday mornings into an opportunity not just to hear the word and sing songs to God, but an opportunity to exhort each other, to encourage and and even challenge each other so that we could be more and more made into the likeness of God, whose glory we were created to reflect. So I think for most of us, we need to focus more acutely on striving for holiness, living set-apart lives. But for some of us, there's a slightly different struggle. Just as there is a danger of caring too little about our holiness, there is also a danger of focusing too much on our obedience if it ignores God's grace. Let me explain what I mean so I'm not misunderstood here. Some of us are prone to confuse living holy lives with trying to attain perfect righteousness ourselves. Christ attained the perfect righteousness and godlike holiness for you. And your living, holy, obedient lives should flow from our love and thankfulness for the grace shown us. Holiness out of a thankfulness for God's grace. But we can be tempted to put the cart before the horse, can't we? We can be tempted to see God's laws and rules as opportunities to climb a ladder of obedience somehow. To try to attain salvation. We can even turn issues that the Bible is silent on, we call gray areas, into black and white laws to follow so that we have more rungs to climb, right? Portraying the perfect picture of family at church, having the right Christian books on your shelves, how to educate your children. Do you send them to public school or do you homeschool them? These things are good, they're good things, but not if they're being used as a way to try to be holy enough to impress God. The law of God cannot save. No one can earn their own righteousness. So brothers and sisters, if you feel tempted to follow the law, not out of love for our Lord, 
but instead out of some felt obligation to earn favor with God, you don't need to be told to be more holy. You need to be told to rest in God's grace. Jesus came and lived that perfect life and died on the cross to secure your redemption because you're not able. And so this is the balance I think we need to keep in mind, all of us. We are a chosen people who are meant to reflect God's holiness. Our God cares about our holiness and hates our sin. And if we have trusted in Christ, we must try and live holy lives. An increasingly holy life is a necessary result of our salvation. But our holiness, despite our best efforts, will always be imperfect. We will never achieve a perfect righteousness because there is only one who ever lived out his holiness perfectly, and that is Jesus. It is his righteousness, his perfect God-like holiness transferred to us at the cross that makes us acceptable in God's sight. And so we need to keep the gospel of grace right next to our pursuit of holiness. In closing, the church is where God's people are meant to display his glory to each other and to the watching world. And so our duty is to make sure that we as the church are imaging God. When we do that well, we spur one another on to good works. We can help each other along in holiness together. And when we display his glory, we also show the world that we are indeed a set-apart people. So I encourage you to exhort each other, encourage and challenge each other, support each other, teach God's word to each other, pray for each other in such a way so that all of you at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church reflect God's glory as a people. And when you fall short of God's standard of holiness, be quick to point one another to the cross. Let's pray. God, we adore you, Lord. We praise you for your holiness. Your holiness should give us a fear of you, but also a love for you. Help us want to fall on our faces and worship you the way the Israelites did when they saw your glory. God, we confess we do fall short of your standard of holiness. Help us not to rest in that or take solace in that, but, but come to you and confess that. Help us care about our holiness. Lord, will you help with your Holy Spirit drive us to live holy lives and care about living holy lives? And Lord, we know we can't ever do that perfectly, so we do thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for Jesus who died on the cross and rose again achieved that perfect holiness and transferred it to us so that we could have an eternal life with you. We're ever grateful, Lord, and we say all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.